brethren, many of you know that all kinds of our brethren, hundreds of them all over the world, I'm sure, about our immediate church and some of our other separated brethren are in need of prayer for healing. People are sickly in our generation and many people are not being healed as they ought to. Before long, millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of Americans, Britons, Canadians, Australians, Kiwis from New Zealand and others will need healing. We know that. Jesus Christ said, as you all know, back in Matthew, and I'm going to turn there very briefly. You don't need to. You can if you want. I'm just going to mention this one verse. He talks about the end times. Nation will rise against nation. Matthew 24, verse 7. Kingdom against kingdoms. At the end of the age, he said this would happen. And there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So there will be, as he said here, pestilences. And that certainly includes, as we know, terrible disease epidemics. And there are going to be, as many, many scriptures tell us, terrible disease epidemics at the time of the end. And the doctors and the clinics and the hospitals are going to be absolutely overwhelmed and they will not be able to take care of everyone. They just will not. And yet, the Christian religion, so-called the mainstream Protestants, don't regard healing. There are two extremes, it seems, in the world. There are the Pentecostals who hoop and holler and raise their hands and talk about healing and all kinds of things that generally do not happen. I've checked up on them, and I can't say they never happen, but I'm quite sure that very few of those do happen from my personal experience. And then we have the mainstreamers who just talk about Jesus loving you and just give your heart to the Lord. And they talk about forgiveness from sins, but without real repentance, but they don't bring in healing. And healing is part of the gospel too, and a very important part. We don't preach on that as much as we should, so I want to get back to that. I'll tell you, we're going to need that in the next few years. Things are speeding up, and we're going to need that, and we in this church are going to have to have a lot more faith and understanding about it because pestilences and disease epidemics are going to come. And our understanding on healing is, as you know, that we can go to doctors to get advice, and sometimes we need to do what the doctor says or ought to do. Each one has to make his own decision. Jesus said, they that are sick need a physician. He didn't say it was a sin to ever go to a doctor. And we used to go to the other extreme on that. And near the end of his life, some people criticized me for saying that, some of the extreme right-wingers. Kind of amusing to me. Some people used to regard me as a right-winger, and now they regard me as a liberal sometimes because I'm trying to be in the middle. And they want to go way over here or way over here. We need to be in the middle but not the worldly middle, but the middle of God's Word, what God actually says in the Bible. And Mr. Armstrong, near the end of his life, as you know, did talk about healing. He himself was taking eight or nine medications, and he advised me to go get a detached retina operation. He advised Gerald Waterhouse to go have his hernia operated on. And we did have many, many operations near the last several years of Mr. Armstrong's life, and he was not against that. He came to realize we had gone too far the other direction. But he realized, and I think all of you do, that ultimately God is the only healer in the sense of divine healing. He's the only one who can just remove the penalty without any side effects, any problems at all. Supernaturally intervene in the human body and bring about healing. Only God can do that. And we have to really understand that and realize that that really is an important part of the gospel, brethren more than I think many of us focus on. I mentioned it before, but I don't think we really get it. 
58 years ago, this coming September, just in about three months, I came down from Anderson Ranch Dam in Idaho, where I'd worked on the maintenance crew the whole summer of 1949, a very carnal young man. I wasn't doing something horrible. I wasn't a drunkard or a fornicator or a drug addict, but I was certainly had all kinds of evil thoughts and vanity, selfishness, lust, and greed. And I'd been trying to make up my mind whether to go down to this strange college in Pasadena and hear this man that I had been hearing on the radio and go to this tiny little college. I'd been there briefly the previous summer. Mr. Armstrong was not there. Dick Armstrong and I sat on the bare stairs. They didn't have carpets yet and talked about the football team we might have in college and, and quizzing him. I came to realize they had very few students <clears throat> and they didn't have enough students even to get a football team, even to make up a football team. <laughs> but we were talking about that because he was still carnal and certainly I was. So I came finally at the end of the summer after nearly being killed three times in an unusual way. I've described to some of you personally. I thought maybe God has a message for me here. And I won't take time to tell all those stories today. But I came down to Ambassador College, and my very first impression of Mr. Armstrong in a very tiny college where there were just 12 students, including his son, and we got to know him very, very well. We spent the first Thanksgiving, I think, in his home, and we had hundreds of meals with him, or I had, I guess, hundreds or maybe thousands over the years with Mr. Armstrong personally, and got to know him very, very well. My first impression was a man who had a tremendous, dynamic personality a deep, rich voice, and who radiated, more than anything else, radiated faith. I really did. I was thinking about that the other day in a different relationship because I went back home to Joplin and I saw my parents' graves, and the graves of my grandparents and my sister Patty there. And I got to thinking about when I first came to Ambassador College, 58 years ago almost, and that man radiated faith. That was one of the unusual things about him. And it's never left my mind when I think about Mr. Armstrong. As he got older and had trials and tests and the work went through all kinds of ups and downs, he didn't radiate that same faith as much perhaps as he did earlier, but he still had it. And I always remember that. And back in those days, brethren, with very few brethren, we had scores of divine healings. Some people think, well, healing was just for the apostolic age. It was just for the twelve apostles. No, it was not. And most of you know that. Many of you have been healed. But people still have that sort of fixed in their brain. But we had all kinds of healings. His daughter Beverly had a huge tumor, almost like a grapefruit in her stomach. And Mr. Armstrong anointed her. And I was already in college, and he told the story about it. And he told his daughter, she'd been baptized, although we came to realize later she wasn't converted, but she apparently believed part of the truth. And he told her, he said, Beverly, if you want God to heal this tumor, he said, you had better spend at least one hour in Bible study every day and at least one hour in prayer on your knees every day so you can draw really close to God and let God put His faith in you. You've got to devote yourself to getting close to God to have that kind of faith to be healed. He told that story a number of times. I don't have difficulty in remembering it because I heard it perhaps four or five times from Mr. Armstrong over the years in person and in various smaller groups, maybe in a larger group. His own wife, if you read his autobiography, he tells about the supernatural healing where Mrs. Armstrong had five or six things wrong with her. 
And he began to fast and fast and pray and seek God. What's wrong, Father? And he came to realize his heart was too much in a clay project. He was still a minister, but he had this thing on the side. And he was trying to make some money on this clay project. And his money wasn't, his mind wasn't focused on God. And when he really repented and turned to God, God healed his wife just like that of several things at once. And her life was spared and so on, as he tells in his autobiography. And I've heard her tell it, and I've heard enough about it that I know that that was a genuine healing. I remember in the early years of the college, some of you older brethren remember Mr. Jim Friddle. He was about eight or ten years older than me, but he, uh, he, I think he's still alive. And his own mother was there and was over at Big Sandy. Mr. Armstrong and Dick and Ted often went over there during the spring festival and stayed the whole time, about nine or ten days straight through. And Mrs. Friddle came up, and she had a very severe case of cancer, as I remember it was, life-threatening, very serious, and was scared. And she came, and Mr. Armstrong took back into his little office behind the stage. And others I talked to, I think Mr. Ken Swisher and some others who were there, said Mr. Armstrong talked to her, and she was crying and kind of afraid. And he got very emotional, and he just rebuked the thing. He said, I rebuke this in the name of Jesus Christ. And she was healed, and healed very quickly in those days. We had many other instances of divine healing. Later, as I became a young minister, one of the only three or four that were kept there at college, the two Raymonds, as we called them, Raymond Manera and Raymond Cole, were sent to the field. And, of course, Dean Blackwell and Gerald Waterhouse came along years later. But Herman Hay and I were kept there at the college, and he would often have us join him, both of us or one or the other of us. And I was with him several times. I don't know if it was six or 12, but several times to join him in laying hands on the anointed claws. And we would have these claws cut up in little squares and then have a big bottle of olive oil to pour on the claws. But before that, he would read a number of letters about people writing in asking for healing. And they would, some would had, had cancer, some had terrible heart trouble, some had other terrible ailments. Many were life-threatening. And so he would focus and then read one or two scriptures. He took time, and then we would pray. Once or twice he asked Herman or me to pray, but generally he would pray, but we would pray with him and ask God and lay hands with him on these claws that God would heal these people. And I would check with Mrs. Olson and some of the other ladies that read the mail later, and I was from Missouri, as you remember, always there to show me, check up. Missouri's the show me state. And I would ask them what happened, and I would check around in other ways. This is very unscientific, I know, but my impression is that about one-third of the people were healed right away from those claws. Thousands of them over the years. About one-third were healed right away of all kinds of things. One-third were healed over the next several weeks or months. And another third apparently were never healed at all. What's the difference? Well, Jesus said, without me reading all the scriptures, most of you know this. I don't have time to cover the whole subject of healing today. But Jesus said again and again and again, according to your faith, be it unto you. Some of them had real faith and some of them did not. And then, of course, there are other cases where God allows some to die. He allowed some of the faithful servants of his to die back in apostolic times, just he allowed some of us to die at our time. And he has a purpose and a certain reason at times that we don't always understand until later. 
But at any rate, that was the way it worked. And certainly we had many, many wonderful healings, and yet we know everyone was not healed immediately. One of Mr. Armstrong's favorite scriptures through the years that he mentioned many, many times was Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, where it says, God's inspired word, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ has not changed, and Christ is to live his life in us, and Christ is to do his work in us as ministers today. And we have to really understand that and realize the ultimate meaning of that. And yet today, brethren, in the greater church of God, and I've talked to some in the past in United and David Hume's church and some of these other groups out here, they don't have very many healings either. We're all in the same boat, pretty much. We may have more healings than living. I don't know that, so I'm not going to say. But we're not getting the degree of divine healings that we used to at all. We've seen terrible problems. We've seen the church come apart. And that hurt a lot of people's faith. And they said, what happened to God? Did God do anything? He just let the church come completely apart and didn't give us any way out. Well, as I've said later, it even hurt my faith for a while. It didn't destroy it, but it weakened it somewhat until I came to realize, I hope in all humility, because I'm not worth anything. I'm a bunch of dirt, a pile of dung, a pile of dirt. That's all I am, and I know that. But God used me to help raise up the work in spite of my human weaknesses, within several weeks, 10 or 15 weeks after Mr. Armstrong, not after Mr. Armstrong's death, but after the apostasy began. We started the Global Church of God with six to nine weeks we were on the radio, and then very quickly we got out a magazine, and then we did this and that. We had booklets coming out. My wife typed the early booklets. Later we had secretaries and others typing some, and we got out booklets right away and begin to publish a magazine and do a work right away within a very few months after we started. So if they had been patient for, let's say, three to six months, they would have found that there was a program on KIEV Glendale and back in this station in Little Rock, Arkansas. Mr. Crockett remembers the call letters probably that we had at that time. And WOAI, the 50,000-watt clear channel station out of San Antonio, one of the most powerful stations in the United States, we got on pretty quickly as well. Other stations across the country. There was a work revived. God did not lead us without help at all. But it did hurt our faith. Mr. Armstrong died. The apostasy happened. And later, we've had splits, of course. United has had splits. Other churches have had splits. We've had our split with the board literally throwing some of us out and having to start all over again. And then we've had a number of the finest men on earth die. And I don't want to name them all because I may forget somebody. I didn't list everybody, but we know that two of the most outstanding evangelists that died were Mr. Carl McNair, who was faithful from the very beginning, helping to put together the church administration department and the work, and then going back up to Montana to rest with his eye hurting and this ulcer, and then after the Salyer group tried to overthrow me and take over the work and destroy it, then he came right back down faithfully and started CAD, church administration, all over again on my uh, breakfast nook <laughs> in my kitchen in, in uh, Salata Lane in Pasadena or in, in uh, San Diego, I mean. He came right back down and started all over and gave himself to doing the work of God and somehow God allowed him to die. 
Now, he didn't die young. I know his children realize that, and his very fine son is here. He died at exactly the same age his parents did. Still, it was a deep blow. We didn't think he would die at age 66 and two-thirds. So, as I've said, everyone does not live to be exactly 70. But an even greater shock, simply because he was even 10 years younger, was Mr. John O'Gwen. And here his wonderful son was up here just preaching this fine sermonette to us. And he died at age 56. Kind of blew our minds. And we had Randy Gregory and, and David uh, Burson and, and, and many, many other very fine men die. And we didn't know altogether why God has allowed some of our ministers to die and a number of our brethren to die. So that can hurt the faith of some. They can say, where is God? He allows people to die. But brethren, He's always allowed people to die. And we know that we're not as close to Him as we should be, though. And we need to face that factor. If we were, perhaps we would get even more healings. But the whole church of God has gone through these things and these upsets. And we today, dear brethren, and you brethren around the world who may hear this later, we are surrounded, just surrounded by materialism and doubt and cynicism just pouring out of the television, the radio, the Internet, every other way, pouring into the minds of our brethren and especially our young people. Thank God I grew up before there ever was television. The Internet was never even heard of. The Word was never heard of. And I was able to get out and play hundreds of hours out in the open fields and fly kites off the chat piles out in western Joplin, out in southwestern Missouri, and wasn't distracted. We would go to see the Saturday movies, and that's about the worst we did. Once a week on Saturday afternoon, we'd see Hopalong Cassidy chasing the Indians or something like that. Pretty innocent by today, but there wasn't anything else there. That wasn't because I was good. That's just because of the age I grew up in. We had a chance to look up at the sky and think about God. And people were more religious. They had more of a consciousness of God. We didn't have all the pills and potions a pill to wake up, a pill to go to sleep, a pill for this and a pill for that, all through our society. And you young people have grown up on that and you young people around the world and you take that for granted. For the first 6,000 years almost of human society, people didn't take that for granted. There wasn't any such thing. And when people got sick, quite often those who were Christian, at least even in the Protestant sense, thought about God. Some of them would pray for one another. They didn't have real faith in divine healing like in the church of God. But some of them had a degree of faith and thought about it, talked about it. But today, that's almost gone. And it's going, 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 gone almost in God's church today. I don't think we get many sermons on healing and things related to healing. We need that. That's so important. And we've got to get back for that. So we've had these upsets. But God's Word stands. God's Word stands. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You turn back to Luke chapter 18. And I was talking to Mr. Millich this morning, just a couple hours ago. And he mentioned this as well. And I've used this many times. Luke 18, verse 1. Jesus spoke a parable to men that they should ought to pray and not to faint or not to lose heart. People do lose heart sometimes when God doesn't hear their prayer right away. Saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God or regard man, and a widow came saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he wouldn't, though he didn't fear God or man. He just was an independent cuss, so to speak. Yet because this widow troubles me, he said, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she'll just wear me out. 
So Lisa McCarnell said she kept coming and kept coming, and finally even this unconverted carnal judge, who was basically selfish, he was willing to hear her, and says he, Jesus went on to show, in effect, how much more would God hear us? How much more will God hear us, you see? Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And verse 7, And shall God not avenge His own elect, and get this next phrase, who are His elect, who cry out day and night to Him. Do you cry out day and night? I don't do that as much as I should. Most of you don't do that as much as you should. I know on the baptizing tours and during some campaigns I've had, during some stressful times, they just cry out and talk to God and walk with God in a sense all day long. And before each new baptism, we'd ask God as we approach the house, be with us, guide us, help us to help this old lady or this young woman, help her husband not to come out with a shotgun and shoot us as some threaten to do, guide us and be with us. And we pray as we approach each house, sometimes even together, just bowing our knees. Then we would ask God to give them the Holy Spirit right after baptism. And then I would pray as Raymond was driving along 90 miles an hour. We were late to get to the next and ask God to protect us. And I'm sure he'd do the same when I was driving. But we were praying. And we had to have God's help. We had to sort of walk with God as young men way off from home in strange places, people threatening us from time to time. But in our normal society, when I was in Ambassador College and we had the ball games and the dances and the parties and the clubs and, you know, it's easy to kind of get in routine and not be so stirred up about God. We can have our ups and downs, but we're not crying out to God. But His elect cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them. He doesn't always hear them right away. I tell you that He will avenge them speedily, you see, in His time. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, that's our time now, will He really find faith on the earth? Jesus said that. That's what He said. A rhetorical question indicating there wouldn't be much real faith on this earth at the time of Christ's coming. And brethren, that's what's happened to us. And we're getting away from God. And we're getting away from the understanding of the reality of God. Most of us don't have that radiant faith that Mr. Armstrong had. That radiant faith that undoubtedly the Apostle Peter had and Paul had. Here's Peter. He cursed and swore, it says. Go look it up at the end of his life. That's what the Bible says. He cursed and swore and denied Christ three times in a row. Three times. And within a few months, wasn't too long afterward, Acts 5, verse 15. Acts chapter 5, verse 15. Peter's shadow. Not long prayers for each one. Peter's shadow passing over people healed them. What a remarkable thing. Now, I've told you before, and I'll say it again. God has times when He does things more remarkably than ever. It wasn't that Peter was a thousand times more faithful, but I'm sure he was a great deal more faithful than we are because he saw Christ. He saw Christ suffer. He saw Christ die. He saw Christ rise from the dead. He must have had chills go up and down his spine. And he and the others suddenly ended up with a radiant faith after that. And God's Spirit was poured out on them. We can tell God, Father, we haven't seen you in person. Please help us to be more aware of you. Help us to know you more. Help us to know and know that we know that you're there. Help us to drink any of your word and help it to become more real. And help us to realize your promise back in Romans 10:17. 
Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Drinking into this book, feeding on this book, letting these things come real in our lives become very real to us. That builds faith. We can beg God, build faith in us, put the faith of Jesus in us and help us to walk and live by faith in every phase of our lives and certainly in healing. God wants us to do that, brethren. We must do that as the church of God. And as we come to the end of this age, we're going to have to have more divine healing. So let's understand. Turn back to Matthew chapter 8 at this point, if you would. I'm turning to Matthew chapter 8, just after the Sermon on the Mount. Beginning in verse 14, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother sick with a fever. Peter was a married man. He was not the celibate pope. He had a mother-in-law. And he touched her hand and the fever left her. Christ was son of God, immediately healed her. Then she rose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many, not a few, many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Healing the sick, discerning spirits, casting out demons... Those things always went together in the apostolic church. He healed all who were sick. Why? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Listen, he's quoting from Isaiah 52 and 3. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And again, you read the booklet on healing, Does God Heal Today?, which I wrote. And it gives you the whole story. If some of you haven't read that booklet, some of you newer brethren here, some of you brethren around the world who haven't read it, get that booklet, read it, study it, read the Scriptures in it, look them up, feed on it, become familiar with it. If you can disprove it some way, write and tell us. We'll change it if we're wrong. That booklet is based on the Bible. Read that booklet, study it. Healing has to do with forgiveness of sin. Forgiving physical mistakes where we break the physical laws that God has set in motion. And sometimes through the generations, we have broken those laws. Perhaps the individual doesn't always, but you inherit a tendency to have this or that problem. We know that. So sometimes it's something you have done also, and usually we add to what's already there, of course. So he healed the sick because Isaiah said he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And that's a very important part of the story. Then you go on over to chapter 9, verse 1. So he got into boat, crossed over, came to his own city, and behold, they brought him a paralytic, a man who was paralyzed, terrible infirmity, lying on a bed, and Jesus seeing their faith. See, according to your faith, be it unto you. They had faith. He said, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once the Pharisees said, the scribes, this man blasphemes. They weren't willing to acknowledge he was the Messiah. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your heart? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say arise and walk? Now, brethren, please think about that. Healing the sick is forgiving sins and forgiving sins, spiritual sin is forgiving sins. Both of them are part of the good news. Good news that you can be healed physically and you can be healed spiritually. One is a type of the other. And you'll see that in a number of places through the Bible. Healing is part of preaching the gospel. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately uh, he rose and went on to his house. And when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God. Verse 8, Who had given such power to men. And again, turn to so many other scriptures like Acts 5.15. I have here my margin put in there again. Peter's shadow passing over people healed them. Such power was given to human beings, to men. Now, we know that God did do that. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Turn to chapter 10, Matthew 10. And when he had called here, as it says, the twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits, over demons, to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness. You say, oh my, it's AIDS. Nobody can heal AIDS. Oh, it's Epstein-Barr. It's some un unhealable thing. No, it's not. Nothing is unhealable. Nothing is impossible with God. We know that. He healed all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And then it names the twelve. And it says in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out, commanded them. This is part of Christ's commission to preach the gospel. This is part of the work of God. Don't go into the way of the Gentiles or Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And over and over, God says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That's what we're doing primarily. Certainly we reach other nations as well, but we focus on Israel as they did. And as you go, do three things. Preach, saying the kingdom of heaven, not in heaven, the kingdom of heaven, or as Mark, Luke, and John says, the kingdom of God, ruled from heaven, from God, by God. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. The way is open to enter. Number one. Number two, heal the sick. Here was the commission. First, preach the gospel. Number two, heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Raising the dead was far less done, but they did do that on occasion. Forgiving physical sins and restoring human life when someone had just recently died. Number three, cast out demons. Number three, cast out demons. We're given power over demon spirits. God's true ministers are. All right, that's part of the gospel. That's part of the work of God. And we must not forget that. We often forget that. We play that down. We get away from that. God help us to get back to that as a church. God help us to get back to that as a ministry. Focus on that. Pray about that. Fast about that. Seek God about that. We're not going to get that automatically unless we as a church build a kind of a radiant faith based on this book and based on these promises of God. Not going to be easy. We've gotten away from it so long and so far. Let's understand that. In 1 Thessalonians, notice what God tells us there that relates to this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. He told the Christians here, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. What do you mean fallen asleep? They had died. Obviously, they had died prematurely because people were upset. It didn't say they died at age 87 or 95 or something like that, or 102. They had died prematurely. Don't sorrow as others who have no hope. Yes, we have had people die in their 50s and 60s and we're sorry. But don't sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so He will bring with Him those who sleep. They are dead. They sleep in Jesus. They're not, in a, they're not in a rapture. They're not up in heaven at all. They are dead. Dead in the grave. 
For this we say to you by the word of God that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. We're not going to get in God's kingdom ahead of them. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, a powerful voice ringing around the world like rolling thunder. And with the trumpet of God, a tremendous blast that will shake the earth, perhaps shake even the mountains physically. That great God will intervene. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. We're not going up to heaven, but we'll be caught up in the clouds of this earth's atmosphere. And then the rest of the Bible, like Acts 1 and Zechariah 14 and many other scriptures show, will come right back down to the Mount of Olives with Christ here on this earth because the millennium is going to be here on this earth, not up in heaven. So we will ever be with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. Some do die prematurely. Some did die. In the early church of God at, at Thessalonica, it wasn't strange, but some of them were tempted to be sorrowful and overcome with sorrow. Paul says, don't do that. You can sorrow, be sorrowful, but don't sorrow as others who have no hope. There is a hope. And that hope is very, very real. The entire ultimate hope of the Christian is not eternal life in this flesh, but the resurrection from the dead. And Christ will heal and heal and heal, but at some point He may let many, even in the church, die a physical death for a few years and sleep until the trumpet call comes and we rise to meet Christ in the air. And Paul made that plain. A concept, brethren, I hope you can get, and I try to refer to this, it's encouraging to me at least, and I hope it is to you as you think about it. Back in Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching to the pagans here at Athens, and he said in verse 26, He, God, has made from one blood every nation of men on the, to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined the appointed times and bounds of their habitation. God is the one who brought us over here, God is the one who sent our people, Joseph, out to New Zealand and Australia and all those wonderful places. God guided that and gave us the choicest places of the earth. And now vast portions of Australia are in a horrible drought, the worst drought in human history. The western southwest part of the United States is in a terrible drought. And we're going to have more drought, more famine, and terrible disease epidemics. We'll have to have God's help. We know that. Not going to be forever but probably within the next five to ten years. And some of these things may begin big time, even sooner than five years. So we need to realize that. He's guiding these events so that they should seek the eternal. They should seek God. It will humble people and help them to say, where is God? Is there a real God? Help me, O God, in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him, Paul writes... In Him we live and move and have our being. That's a very beautiful expression to me personally. In Him we live and move and have our being. My life is in God's hands. Every hair of my head is numbered. Every hair of your head is numbered. He knows all about us. He's our Father. He will never leave us nor forsake us. In Him we live and move and have our being. He's not going to run off from us unless we run off from Him. And we have to really understand that and appreciate that profoundly. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians, 
and this time chapter 15. And I'd like to read it all, of course. It's the resurrection chapter, but we'll just start in verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, Paul writes. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor corruption, incorruption. We can't get into God's kingdom in this carnal flesh. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We're going to be totally changed. I don't know if we'll feel something, but I can imagine, you know, and it's good to use your imagination a little bit, I guess, and as you're not twisting Scripture, but maybe you'll feel a tingling, and suddenly you'll feel yourself going up, 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 like Superman, you know, up, up, and away. <laughs> and you'll look down, and the cities will be fading behind you, and suddenly you'll look up ahead of you, and there will be Christ and glorious power and magnificence with an angelic escort. And you will join them, and then the whole group move together over Jerusalem. And as I've often pictured up in Mountain View Cemetery in Pasadena where Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong are buried, Dick Armstrong is buried, my wife and many other loved ones that we've known and loved are buried. As I've said, there's going to be a traffic jam when that last trumpet sounds. A traffic jam. <laughs> All kinds of people are going up from that same place. And Mr. Ames has told me, because he's spent so much time in Big Sandy, he thinks there may be about as many out of Gladewater Cemetery right there because there's so many older came, moved, people moved there. And there'll be a traffic jam from that little cemetery just north of Old Highway 80. And very many dozens of God's people rising together to meet Christ in the air from all over the world at that last trump. So he tells us that. And this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption is put on incorruption and this mortal subject to death is put on immortality, then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Yes, God will take care of it. I don't know why God let Dick Armstrong die at age 29 I don't know why God let John O'Gwen die at age 56. I don't know why God let Carl Manair die at 66. I don't know why God let Mr. Gregory die and Mr. Burst and these other fine men. I can imagine why God let Mr. Torrance die. He was a tough old guy, so he wouldn't mind me saying that because he was already, what was it, 87 or something. <laughs> so he lived a long time and a wonderful life. That's not strange. But some of the younger ones will understand later. He will understand, and we'll really understand and agree when God says, here's a good reason I had, or maybe ten reasons. Sometimes God doesn't have one reason, maybe he has a whole bunch of reasons why it's actually going to work out better for the person, their family, people around them, the whole church, to sort of stir everyone in a certain way. He understands. But death will be swallowed up in victory, and the ultimate healing will take place. God will heal their body in that sense, give them a whole new body, and they will be here. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 6. Brethren, Hebrews chapter 6, if you would now. And let's read at this point, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation, which the Protestants don't understand at all. The foundation is repentance from dead works. They don't even understand what they repent of. They repent of breaking God's law. And sin is the transgression of God's law, so they don't know that. Not having, again, laying again the foundation of repentance and of faith toward God. 
You've got to really repent and you've got to look to God in faith for a whole lot of things. Of the doctrine of baptisms, first you're baptized in water, then you're to be baptized of the Holy Spirit, and then Christ baptizes you or puts you into His church at that point. And of the laying on of hands, the doctrine that God works through human instruments. Through human instruments. He always has. They're not perfect human instruments. There's only been one perfect human instrument. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. He's the only one. The rest of them are imperfect. But through them, He heals the sick. People are anointed. Little children are blessed. And many other things by the laying on of hands. And of the resurrection of the dead. The ultimate hope and the ultimate healing. And of eternal judgment. There is going to be a judgment for what we've done. And this we will do if God permit. We will go on to perfection. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift to really experience God's Holy Spirit and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good Word of God and the powers, they may have been supernaturally healed by God. I think I've told you how I was supernaturally healed, but maybe I haven't in a long time. Kind of amusing, but I had warts all over my the backs of my, well, I think it was the front of my hands. And I cut them off with a razor blade. I was a tough guy. My mother was scared to death. They would bleed. I'd try to cut down with a razor blade. I'd take a hot match and grind down in there. I used lemon juice on them. Someone told me that would kill them. I tried a whole bunch of other things. And finally, my mother got scared I'd kill myself. So she took me to the doctor. And he used these electric needles. And they run right down in the core of the wart. And that's supposed to kill it. Well, it didn't. I had the healthiest warts west of the Mississippi. <laughs> I really did. They were powerful warts. Soon after I came to Ambassador College, I can't remember, it was just before, just after I was baptized. It doesn't make any difference. I think I'd been baptized. But Mr. Armstrong preached a sermon on healing. And I had never known about divine healing before at all. Never heard one word about it, of course, in the Methodist Church. And so I asked him to heal my warts. Now, looking back, I should have asked for something better. I should have asked that he would heal my eyes because I was nearsighted. Or he'll, you know, all kinds of things. Give me a better face, a bigger body. You know, I'm kidding, but something else more important. But I asked for warts because they seem to be the biggest problem. And I had faith. I was very young in the faith, very new in the faith, but a kind of a child. Like I, I knew the way he prayed with this deep conviction that God would heal him. But nothing happened. And two weeks went by, three weeks, six weeks. I don't remember, eight or ten weeks. Something in there between six and twelve weeks I'd get up each morning on the third floor of Mayfair, the student dormitory. Some of you have been there. And when my feet had hit the floor, it seemed like a habit. Before I went to the bathroom, I'd just hold out my hands and look at the warts. They were still there every morning. No change whatever. One morning I got up and they were totally gone. Totally gone. They didn't slowly went away. They just banged. They were gone. And being the man from Missouri... I pulled back the covers. I thought I'd find the warts under the covers. They weren't there. I looked down on the floor, got down on my knees. I don't want no warts. Where did they go? Where did they go? God, you know, vaporized them or something. But God healed them. He simply took them away. Now, I haven't been healed of a lot of other things just like that since. I wish I would have. But I had that experience. Sometimes at the beginning, if some of you have had this happen, near the beginning of your Christian life, God will give you certain signs to let you know that he's there. And then later he tests your faith and so on. But that was a good encouragement to me. I knew he was there. I knew he healed those warts because it wasn't something gradual and I wasn't taking any medicine or going to any doctor or doing anything. 
I'd been anointed by God's servant, Mr. Armstrong. They bang, they were gone. No sign of them. So that was very encouraging. But at any rate, we know that the laying on of hands produces action. God works through human instruments. Now back in chapter 10, if you would, of, uh, of uh, this book, Hebrews 10, verse 35, Paul writes here, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. Brethren, we've been here a long time, some of us even in this room. We have some new visitors, but some of our brethren here have been around the church a long time, and they could get weary with well-doing. You know, they think, well, things go on and things go on, and it hasn't happened yet, and you get discouraged after a while sometimes if you're not careful. Don't give up or cast away your confidence, your faith, for you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. He will come. He's going to come back again and will not tarry. He's not going to be lagging around. Now the just shall live by faith. And we've got to learn to build faith, ask Christ to build faith within us through His Spirit, grow in faith, and live by faith all day long. In every action we have, we've got to live by faith in the way we love our wife or husband. We've got to live by faith in the way we train our children. We've got to live by faith in the way we work in our business. We've got to live by faith in the way we treat our neighbors. We've got to live by faith in the way we treat our brethren. You say, well, it's not easy to forgive others when they haven't forgiven you. Well, do it anyway. Do it by faith. Everything you do is based on faith when you get down to it and understand it. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Think about that. My soul has no pleasure in someone who will not learn to live by faith. But we are not of those who draw back to destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So let's learn to walk and live by faith, my brethren. Over in chapter 11, verse 6, Paul writes, But without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe. That's, that's a command. He must believe that He is. You've got to know that God is there and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. But again, remember that one word, diligently. Do you half-heartedly seek God? Most do. Most people seek God that way. Mr. Armstrong said many times through the years, and I've heard him, and he said it in groups, he feels, he's felt that one of the greatest weaknesses in the prayers of God's people was that they did not put their hearts in their prayers. They would just sort of mumble along or have a tired prayer rather than crying out to God. I don't mean a Pentecostal prayer and put on the power to show off. I'm talking about all alone. But you literally get yourself stirred up and exercised and say, God, help me. Please help me to wake up. Help me to get on the ball. Help me to give myself to you. Help me to really feed on this book far more than I've been doing. Help me to pray and cry out to you more than I've been doing. Help me to meditate and think on this book. Help me to fast and exercise the discipline to do without food and seek you with my whole being. And help me to walk with God and walk with Christ as I should and exercise God's Spirit. We need to do that, brethren, zealously. So those who seek God, you see, zealously. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. 
and he wants us to seek him but we want he wants us to do it of course diligently not half-heartedly now let's turn to james a very basic scripture you all know i trust and should be familiar with james chapter 5 in verse 13 james writes the lord's brother is anyone among you suffering? If you're suffering, what should you do? Pray. Cry out to God heartfeltly, though. Say, Father, help me. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Literally, sing some of the hymns and try to praise God in various ways. Is anyone among you sick? Are you sick? Do you have a terrible disease or headache or something that's really a disease like cancer or something, heart trouble? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. We take the oil. I used to carry mine, but I don't get to use it very often. If I get to using it more, I'll carry it. But I've got it in my briefcase right back there. And for deck years, I carried it. Because people now, very people, few people even ask for healing. They're just turned off and don't ask near as often as they used to. They're just getting away from it. I know here we have some of the elders pray for you. But don't be afraid to ask me too. I'll be glad to anoint you. And any of our ministers will. But our ministers carry oil with them. A little bit of olive oil. Olive oil is a symbol of God's Spirit. It doesn't heal anything. It's simply a reminder of God's Holy Spirit. Anointing with oil. In the name, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prayer of faith, what? The prayer of faith, not doubt. The prayer of faith will save the sick. That's a promise. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. There may be rare times when God will do the healing and raising up in the resurrection, as Mr. Armstrong said, but the vast majority of times it's here and now. And I used to hear about these people back when I joined Mr. Armstrong and he would heartfeltly cry out to God, and his voice would tremble and shake as he was crying out to God to heal these people out there with, with cancer and heart trouble. Father in heaven, have mercy on them and heal them. Father, heal us. Father, put within your church the gifts of healing to a far greater degree and grant us the faith and the courage to discern spirits, to cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. Ask for these gifts. Cry out for these gifts. Beseech God for these gifts. I ask you to do that. We need to begin doing that. The prayer of faith will save the sick. The Lord will raise them up. And if he's committed sins, often it's breaking various laws. People get sick because of physical sin and quite often involves spiritual sin as well, as you know. He will be forgiven. One is a type of the other. Forgiving a physical mistake, a spiritual mistake. One is a type of the other. It's part of the gospel. It's part of the good news. You can be forgiven physical mistakes and spiritual mistakes. One is a type of the other. Confess your trespasses, or can be translated your weaknesses. Could include ailments, some translated, to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Pray for each other regularly. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, but most of us are not as righteous as we should be. And we're not seeking God to the degree we should be. Think of this, brethren, and I really want you to think of this. One of the great destroyers of faith, tremendous destroyer that hurts your faith, 
is various compromises you make in your life or sin or feeling of guilt. Those can destroy your faith. Turn back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. John 3.16, you know, is the golden verse. God so gave, so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Here's another John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, real love, because He laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And my brethren, that's one, one way we can do that, is to really pray heartfeltly for one another, that we'd be healed. And pray that God will help each of us overcome and grow and build this faith in His church. For whoever has this world's goods, if you're well off, and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You have plenty, but your brother's over here suffering. No, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue. Don't just say, oh, I bless you, brother, I'll pray for you. That's not enough. Don't just love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. For you really act on it. You give, you help, you serve. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. See, it gives us confidence if we're really zealously serving one another, helping one another, giving to one another, praying for one another. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence. What is confidence? That's one aspect of faith. We have confidence toward God, you see, if we can give and help and serve and know that we've been laid down our lives for God and for our brethren. And whatever, verse 22 is the key. Note, verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? Because we keep His commandments, plural, all ten of them, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. A whole way of life. We keep His commandments. We do not lie, cheat, steal, commit fornication, commit adultery, see foul movies and dwell on half-naked women in the movies and the television, the stuff we watch, and see violence and violence to where we begin to think like that. It's the spirit of the law you're breaking and where you do not have any other gods before the true God. You don't worship your money. You don't worship your family and put them ahead of God. You put nothing ahead of God. God is the one you worship, you adore, you obey, you give yourself to. Have no other gods before the true God. Don't compromise. Don't compromise in any of these ways. So whatever we ask for healing, for casting out demons, for miracles if need be, for blessings for a better job, for delivered from a trial, for a happy marriage, to find the right mate. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments, plural, and do those things, all kinds of things, forgiving one another, loving one another, helping one another, serving one another, that are pleasing in His sight. A way of life. We give our lives to God in that way through His commandments and try with all our heart to love God with our being and to love one another, then we have confidence toward God. But if we water this down, and if you're drinking too much, and you know that you're kind of a semi-alcoholic, how can you have confidence toward God? If you sneak a puff once in a while, and some of you are still smoking on the side, that destroys your faith. You know that. 
Some of you young people maybe still be caught up occasionally in the very sexual experimentation of various things. It destroys your faith because you're watering down God's way of life. And you can't have that confidence in God when you do that. What if you're mean toward others and won't forgive them? And you just hold a grudge. In your heart you know that. And you can't have confidence toward God if you go around holding grudges and won't forgive others. No, you've got to do that. You've got to do all these things. Then you can have confidence in God. Then you can have faith. But otherwise, this sense of guilt will hurt your faith, weaken your faith, and sometimes destroy your faith. Because you've been compromising. You have been sinning. And this feeling of weakness, this feeling of compromise, this feeling of guilt inside your heart begins to destroy your faith. Think about it. But if you walk with God, talk with God, serve God heartfeltly, you can have greater faith. And I've had greater faith at certain points in my life and lesser faith. I'll give you an example. I think I've told you already about the baptizing tours and 1951, 2 and 3, and I was forced to, in a sense, by circumstances, but we would simply visit people all day long. And we would meet Mrs. Jones at uh, the Little Rock Airport or Little Rock Post Office, you know, thinking about the the, uh, Crockett sitting there at 8.30, and they would see these two boys pull up in this big Cadillac or this big old Chrysler, I should say, not Cadillac. We never drove a Cadillac. And they knew who we were right away. Boys, you must be from Ambassador. Yeah, we're the ones. And we'd talk to them and about counsel them and take them out to some pond or place and baptize them. Then we'd drive over to Russellville and baptize some people over there. Then later we'd drive down to El Dorado and baptize some people there. Then maybe we'd head down to Texas and baptize some people in Lufkin or Big Sandy or Dallas or circle, circle, circle through Texas and Arkansas, all through that area and many other areas. Over and over again, ten and a half weeks and 51, 11 solid weeks in 1952. And then half the summer I took Dr. Hay out in 1953. Over and over. Had to pray in the morning, cry out to God all day long. That was good. That kept me on my knees. But then in the summer of 54, I went to Europe with Dick Armstrong. And we were on, we got to go first class. Mr. Armstrong sent us first class. He wanted us to have that experience. It was a good experience. It wasn't his fault. We wore, we dressed for dinner every night. That means we wore tuxedos and women wore their long gowns every single night for five nights on the great Queen Elizabeth. Not the second queen, the big queen, the original Queen Elizabeth, the largest passenger ship afloat in the world at that time. Wonderful experience. But I was dancing with this girl from Canada and some other girls I got to know on the ship, seeing movies at night, wandering around, free drinks, free this, free that. Did I do anything horrible? No, I wasn't around, uh, you know, killing anyone or anything like that. But I was just having fun and taking it easy and, and a new world and seeing all these things in Europe and eating out at beautiful restaurants every night all through Europe. Not always fancy ones, but interesting. Pretty soon I realized, man, we get up and get going and I've only prayed 10 or 15 minutes. I've got to pray longer and get myself earlier, way up before Dick gets up and pray longer. And I've got to pray more at night and I've got to study and make myself study. But I began to feel overcome with guilt because I was having too much fun. And not that fun is bad, but I was letting down and I sensed that I was not as close to God. This Frenchman came up to us, Dick and me, in this uh, in this uh, cemetery. We were seeing this all these American graves, thousands of them, very moving. And just as I was in kind of a emotional situation there, he was anti-American. A lot of communists were still around at that time. 
He like that, like he's going to beat me up. And I said, you get out of here. And I was going to beat him up. All my golden glove slots came back. I'll knock his head off. And then I realized, Rod, you haven't been praying. You got up this morning and only prayed eight or ten minutes and you're ready to wipe this guy out. What's wrong with you? Well, because I've been too busy running around, not doing anything horrible. I just had been in a different way of life where it was harder to pray, harder to meditate, almost impossible to fast, eating in interesting restaurants and seeing all these sites in Europe. And so I was not as close to God. And I repented later when I got back <laughs> and repented some during the trip and tried to devote myself to fasting and praying more when I got back home later. But that's another story. I've had other times in my life, ups and downs, and you get caught up in the around and you're having fun and you're moving and God seems way off because you're compromising, compromising, compromising. Don't do it. You never know when Satan's going to come at you out of the blue and try to overthrow you and take your crown from you. God had mercy on me in those cases. I didn't do anything like that, but I came mighty close several times. I had prostitutes approach me, beautiful girls, absolutely beautiful. I later found out, of course, they were a lot of them were really hungry. After the war, they didn't have jobs, and they had to become prostitutes. But luckily, I smelled a heavy perfume, and I, I wasn't married, of course, but I remember sincerely in my mind, big, two big letters flashed. VD, VD, venereal disease, <laughs> oh, it's heavy perfume in the VD. So I stayed away, but they were beautiful girls, mentioning sexy names and offering themselves and all this kind of stuff, where I was a, a vulnerable young man away from home and lonesome. God could have got me, or the devil could have got me. I mean, God doesn't try to get any of us. But you need to realize that you've got to be close to God all the time, and you can't let down compromise, weakness, lack of prayer and study can kill your faith. You must not do that. Compromise and sin is a destroyer of faith. So you've got to understand. Turn back to 1 John. I guess I've, I've already done that. I'm sorry. Turn now to Mark chapter 4, brethren. Mark chapter 4 and beginning in verse uh, 36. Mark 4 and uh, verse 36. Let's see if I can find it here where my own marker is. Mark 4, verse 36. Now, when they had left the multitude, Jesus and His apostles, they took Him along in the boat as He was, and other little boats were with Him. And here they were, as you know, on the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Genesaret, the Sea of Tiberias, that had all these names. Big lake and it was in an area where big windstorms sometimes come down. I've been there. And a great windstorm came. And the waves were beating into the boat. It wasn't really a ship. It was just a big boat. And it was, it was already filling. And he was asleep. You think, well, Jesus would stand like George Washington at the front of the ship, you know, and have his arm like this. And so, no, he didn't do that. Jesus was asleep. He was a human being. He had been preaching, healing, blessing, serving. He was tired. And he had a clear conscience, so he just laid down and conked right out. He let these young men run the ship while he was resting. But they grabbed him here and woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? We're about to die. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea. He got up and said, Be still, O sea, peace. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. The wind goes, like turning off a big fan. And chills went up and down their spine and said, Wow, here's this guy we're with all the time. 
he seems normal, and every now and then something like this happens, they couldn't get it. They weren't converted. It shook them deeply. And they expressed it, obviously. And he said to them, Why are... Here's the thing you need to hear, brethren. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Did he think he was the only one that could do this? No. He indicated they ought to have that kind of faith and you ought to have that kind of faith and I ought to have that kind of faith. Let's get real. This is what he's saying. How is it that we don't have that deep awareness that God is our Father and that nothing is impossible for God? So they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey Him? But they didn't really understand. Turn to chapter 6 now. Mark chapter 6 and verse 1. Here we find another aspect of Jesus' life. He came and came to His own country. And when the Sabbath has come, He began to teach in the synagogue and said, Who's this guy? We know Him. His brothers and sisters are here. He's the son of Mary. And they were offended at him. But Jesus said, verse 4, Prophets not without honor, except in his own country and among his own family. Now he noticed, brethren, verse 5 is the key verse. Here is God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ. He could do no mighty work there. Even Jesus Christ could do virtually nothing. He could do no mighty work there. Why? except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. It was not his unbelief, but their unbelief, as Matthew 13.35 explains, because of their unbelief. They didn't believe. If there's not an atmosphere of faith, even though I had perfect faith, which I don't, I'm not trying to say that, but if I had perfect faith, and all of you are out there doubting, I couldn't perform some great miracle and occasional local healing. So remember that. We're all responsible. We're all in this together, my brethren. We, you, and I, and all of us in the church, and you, brethren, down in Perth, Australia, and Sydney, and Melbourne, and Cape Town, and Johannesburg, and elsewhere, all of us have got to develop faith, genuine faith in God Almighty. He could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. That's what it says. In fact, I ought to turn back to that. Some of you may think I'm just paraphrasing that other. I'll just turn to it. Matthew 13, 35, the same story is told. But since I was in Mark's account earlier, I stayed with that account. But in verse, uh, uh, what's it, verse uh, 58, I'm sorry, 58, after telling the same story, Mark, uh, Matthew 13, 58, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Their unbelief, not his unbelief. So remember that. An atmosphere of faith has to be created. And I'm trying to create that atmosphere of faith. And I hope you'll pray with me, study with me, cry out to God with me that we can build that atmosphere of faith in the church of the living God. We need that faith. More of our brethren can be healed that we love if we have that faith. And we've got to work at it. We've got to do our part. We can't just work it up. I know that. But we've got to nevertheless do our part. Turn to Luke chapter 10 now, if you would. Well, no, let's turn on over here in chapter 6 where we were. It says uh, in verse 13, So they went out and preached that people should repent. That's the first thing they did as he sent them out. It says in verse 7, He sent them out two by two. And they preached, number one, that people should repent. First you preach the gospel. Number two, they cast out many demons. 
See, that's number two. And anointed with oil uh, many that were sick and healed them. So that's what he did. So these things uh, uh, were, were, were done. Preached the gospel, cast out demons, healed the sick. And they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They used the anointing oil, which it talks about in that case. Over and over, that's part of their commission to preach the gospel. Now turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke, the gospel of Luke chapter 10, and you find the same uh, thing here, uh, which is to be done. Luke 10, and uh, let's begin reading in verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. My brethren, some people think, oh, this was just for the 12 apostles. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. He sent out 35 teams of young men in addition to the 12 apostles, and none of them were converted. You all know that if you think about it. The only converted person around Jesus was John the Baptist until he died. And then Jesus was dealing with unconverted people, as he said near the end of his life to Peter, when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. The Holy Spirit was with them, but not yet in them till the day of Pentecost. And so these 70 other young men he sent out two by two before his face, and he told them the harvest is plenteous, and so on. And he said in verse 8, Whatever city you enter, they receive you. Eat such things as are set before you. Number one, heal the sick. Part of the gospel, heal the sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come on you. All right, that's number two. Normally that's number one, but this time heal the sick, preach the kingdom. And then, did they cast out demons? Well, it doesn't say so here, but it shows they did. Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That's number three. Always those things, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, over and over and over. These are just some of the references, so you understand. Turn now, if you would, back to Mark again. Mark chapter 11. Turn to Mark 11, brethren, and beginning in verse 21. Some of you remember how Jesus cursed this fig tree. He cursed this fig tree. And Peter, in verse 21, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Wow! A tree just starts withering away right overnight after Jesus cursed it. A miracle. So Jesus answered and said, Have faith in God. We have got to build that kind of faith and pray to God that He will build it. He has to do it, but we've got our part. Put it within us. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will come to pass, he will have them. You've got to believe to know that God is there, that he's, you're asking according to his will, that you're walking with him, not have a sense of guilt, and then say, Father, I'm doing my best, I'm not perfect, but this is along the line that you've shown in your word. Please hear my prayer and have faith. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask, Verse 24, whatever, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, perform miracles, ask God's intervention, whatever things you ask, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. What a powerful verse. Mark 11, verse 24. But you can't believe if you have a nagging sense of doubt, can you? You can't believe unless you have, if you have a feeling of guilt. You can't really believe if you have all these complexes in your mind. Well, 
that sounds good, but well, we've had this problem and that problem, so we're not sure and blah, blah, blah. No, you've got to get back close to God, walk with God, talk with God, drink into this Word. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God and grow in that radiant faith to where this church becomes a church of faith and we have far more healings and far more blessings which you're going to really need as the end approaches. And I think we all know that. Let's turn now to Mark 16. Mark 16. After His resurrection, verse 14, Mark 16, verse 14, afterward He appeared to the eleven. Judas had already betrayed Him. So He appeared to the eleven as they sat at meat and He rebuked their unbelief. They still didn't believe. He didn't even been resurrected and they still didn't believe. And hardness of hearts because they did not believe those who'd seen Him after He was risen. Boy, were they carnal. But boy, are we carnal too. So let's not sound self-righteous. We are weak. We need radiant faith in this church. Let's get with it. Let's understand it. Let's start to build it. And He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned or judged as it can be translated. Obviously, God will call some later. And these signs will. He didn't say they might. He didn't say every single person will have all these signs, but in general, these signs will follow His people. These signs will follow those, see, the group who believe. In My name, they'll cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, obviously accidentally, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. I have seen that thousands of people have been healed, and I mean it, brother. They've absolutely been healed. And I've participated in the casting out of demons, and I know that that happens. But these healings and these demon expulsions do not happen nearly as quickly or as often as we would like because we lack faith. We are not as close to God as we could. I'm not be. You're not either. We ought to work on it. We ought to do our part. So they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Christ is at God's right hand. Let's picture that. I don't mean picture a face, but just picture perhaps in a general way. A blinding light. And one blinding light is there from God as the Father and the blinding light next is Jesus Christ. They're sitting there in glory and power and magnificence. They're there. And God is our Father. And every hair of our head is numbered. And He will never leave us nor forsake us. And He promises to heal, to bless, to deliver. Jesus is at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. They went all over the Roman Empire. Some were tortured. Some died horrible deaths. Peter was maybe crucified upside down. Paul went out one early morning and had his head chopped off after all those years of work. Did the disciples give up and quit? No. Are you going to give up and quit and trials and tests are going to come? God help you not to. No. Have faith in God. Get the big picture. They went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. He was using them. They were His tools, His ambassadors and confirming the Word through the accompanying signs. The sick were healed, the demons were cast out, and in some cases, miracles were performed. Brethren, God grant that this may be us. God grant that we as a church could get down on our knees more than we have perhaps ever done, that we can get zealous about it, put our whole heart in it, 
study this book and feed on Christ and begin to build a radiant faith and cry out to God to put within us the faith of Jesus Christ, the kind of faith that Paul had, that Peter had, that James had, that John had, and walk with God and talk with God and devote ourselves to that and not compromise and not get this feeling of guilt and not try to let things down so we can't have faith and we have all these doubts in our heart. Forgive one another. Love one another. Help one another. Serve one another. And walk with God. And if you do that, you will build faith. And God will put His faith within you increasingly. And so I challenge you then to join me in crying out for this kind of faith. And asking God to build the faith and to put the kind of healings and blessings in His church that we all really want. Let's go all out. Whatever you do, do with your might. As a church, I ask all of you to join together and to do this as a special challenge because the end is near.